Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Good morning. Take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to put this bottle of water up here. It's my NIL deal, so I've got to have everybody to see that, all right? So, but I'm going to be drinking some water along the way. But it's great to be here with you at Mercy Hill. This is our uh, third time with you. Uh, We were there, my wife and I, Debbie, uh, we were there when you were um, at the school for a service about five years ago, and we were here on a Sunday night uh, when you ordained a young man here named Seth DeFore, who's pastoring down in the middle of Georgia area, and now we're here today. And what a privilege it is to, to speak to you at Mercy Hill. What I'm looking at today just blesses my heart, and I'm so thankful for the ministry of this church and the story of this church. You know, um, Brandon and Mitchell and I, we go back a, a long way, and um, you know, when I think about their families, uh, Brandon and Kristen and Mitchell and Heather and all of their children were born and dedicated at our church. And I think probably a lot of them have been baptized already. And now some of them are driving. <laughs> That's just, and that amazes me when, I, when I, I saw how tall Hudson is out there in the lobby. But it's, it's amazing to me how time keeps on drifting into the future. You know, we're not supposed to have favorites But I'll tell you, you know, in the years that I've served in churches and on staff, um, I would have to say that Mitchell and Brandon are certainly among my favorites. In fact, I refer to them as my A-team back in the day. You guys remember what that was like. But we had three pastors on our staff that could uh, really preach well. And honest to goodness, I always believed that I was the third best among them. But I'll tell you, Brandon, Brandon was absolutely the best I remember the first time Brandon spoke at our church, and my wife and I were sitting out in the congregation, and as he spoke, my wife turned to me and said, God's hand is on that young man's life. He is anointed. And you've been blessed to have him to be the founding pastor of your church and and, um, and to see how God has been at work. Now, you know, interestingly, I was looking at your website not long ago, and I saw a picture of Brandon, and it occurred to me for the first time, don't you think that he looks a little bit like Jonathan Rumi of The Chosen, only without the hair, right? You know, the guy that plays Jesus on The Chosen? Think about that. Think of him with long hair, but you know, it doesn't matter that he has been like Jesus to so many of you and to so many of us. And and then there's Mitchell. I remember when Mitchell uh, started playing. Uh, He's been playing an instrument as long as I've known him. And he played uh, uh, for our youth starting out on Wednesday nights. And then when we started uh, what we called a contemporary service on Sunday mornings, he played for us part-time. Then he came on full-time. And then later on, he came to help plant this church. And uh, so thankful for Mitchell and his amazing uh, head full of music. Uh, a number of years ago, Debbie and I were with uh, Michael Card, the, the Christian singer and songwriter, but he's also a Bible teacher, and he's fantastic teaching the Bible, but he always has a pre-Bible conference concert where he plays some of his music. And somebody said to him, Michael, would you play this song? And he said, I will if you'll tell me how it goes. And the guy said, you wrote it. And he said this, I can only keep about 40 of my songs in my head at one time. 
Mitchell's head is filled with songs. I looked one time over three, a three-year period of time, and Mitchell played over 100 different songs with our band in three years. You know, that takes a lot of dedication and a lot of talent and a lot of commitment. Aren't you glad for what God has given you and Brandon and Mitchell? Let's give the Lord a hand for them today. Amen? Now, you're reading through the Bible, and your preaching schedule is following that, and I have an amazing assignment, an intimidating assignment this morning, and that is to talk to you about the Ten Commandments. And so I call your attention to the main text for that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and and I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version of the Bible, beginning with verse 1 and going uh, through verse 20. And so let's see what God's Word says here. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep his commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do no work. You are your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then verse 20 says this, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of of him may be before you that you may not sin. May God's blessings abide upon the, the reading of his word. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we open your word, that it would truly be your word to us, that you would hide me behind the cross and they would hear you speaking. And Lord, that you would draw attention through your spirit to this word, that it might be applied to our lives, that we might be convicted, Lord, and that we might repent 
and turn and be more like you. And we see what you're like in Jesus, whose name we pray this prayer. Amen. I mentioned the church that uh, Mitchell and Brandon and I were part of, Central Baptist Church in Warner Robins, Georgia. And about 19 years ago, we had relocated to a brand new site. It was a First Sunday, uh, 19 years ago this month, and it was a wonderful, exciting day. But I was out in the front lobby of the church, and I was greeting people coming and going. And I shook this woman's hand, and thank you for coming. And then I turned and watched her walk through the lobby right into a plate glass window. It was so clear and so clean that she thought it was an open exit. And then I watched a little boy do the same, and finally I grabbed some folks, and we grabbed some plants and and put it in front of those windows so no one else would, on their way out of church, run into that plate glass window. Sometime after that, an older couple in our church who were very passionate about the Ten Commandments, they said, you know, we would like everybody to know the Ten Commandments. And so they had fashioned and inscribed this very heavy, elaborate bronze plaque that had the Ten Commandments summarized on it. And then they had built by a carpenter this beautiful stained wooden pedestal. And they came with that and they said, we'd like for this to go someplace in the church. And I said, I've got just the place. And so we placed it there in front of that window. So number one, People would no longer run into that window and hurt themselves. And so on the way, they would also see and learn and read and come to know the Ten Commandments. In our text in verse 2, we're reminded that the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt by God. They had been there for 400 years. And now they were free. And the future was clear right before them. But to keep them from getting hurt, God gave them the Ten Commandments. And verse 20 tells us that God gave these commandments that you may not sin. And sin is not only what you do wrong, sin is not only breaking God's commandments, but it is what happens when you break God's commandments, you hurt yourself and you hurt others and you make a mess of the whole world. So God, to summarize all of his covenant commands, gave them these Ten Commandments so that they could stay on track and they could stay clear of the as yet unforeseen problems that they would face. And I believe that that purpose still stands today for the Ten Commandments. These commandments are still relevant and they're here for the same reason, to keep people from sinning. Here's a quick outline if you want to know. I think it's going to be on the screen behind me uh, of what we're going to do this morning. The Ten Commandments in context, the Ten Commandments in content, what are they? Summarize quickly. And then the Ten Commandments in Christ. What does Christ have to do with the Ten Commandments? And how do we as Christians uh, understand what Christ wants us to do with them. But first of all, the Ten Commandments in context, and I have two things in mind here. First of all, I'm thinking of their impact upon human civilization. The Ten Commandments have been with us uh, an estimated 3,500 years. Uh, They come straight from God, and to me, because of that, 
Uh, They are not just rules of a religion, but they are moral absolutes that God has given us. Uh, We can see evidence of these in some laws that historically predate the Ten Commandments, like the Code of Hammurabi. But if that troubles you, we can also go right back to the beginning of time in the, in the history of the church, our history of the world, and we can see some of these commandments already operative. For instance, uh, uh, you read already, I'm sure, early on in, in Genesis that God rested on the seventh day and made it holy. And so there was that, that commandment already operative. The very first commandment that was broken by man was the last commandment that we read, number 10, coveting. And coveting is when man desired and wanted to take what God had forbidden. And not long after that, man violated another commandment, and that was murder. Fast forward some 2,000 years from Moses, and we see all of these Ten Commandments actually articulated in the Quran, which was written in the 600s A.D. And then when we look at all of the man-made codes of law, we can see in them many of the Ten Commandments that God gave us, like you shall not murder, and you shall not steal, and you shall not lie. These are fundamental to human codes of law, and that's why in Western civilization, We see plaques and monuments with the Ten Commandments on them in schools, in courthouses. And yes, if you go to the Supreme Court of the United States of America, you will see the Ten Commandments displayed in that building. And so all of these go back to the Ten Commandments. But the second thing I want you to understand about the context of the Ten Commandments is this. Their intent was to be practiced within the covenant of Judeo-Christianity. And although we believe the Ten Commandments all come from God and they are absolute and meant to be universally practiced, we know that they will only work as intended when we are in a covenantal agreement and a relationship with the one true God. And let me show you something. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 gives an exact replication with very little difference of the Ten Commandments we find in Exodus 20. But in Deuteronomy 4, there is a preface to all of that. And in Deuteronomy 4.13, we find these words, And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. This reminds us that that the Ten Commandments are part of the covenantal commitment and relationship that God's people are to have to Him. I think as Christians, sometimes we get frustrated that in our culture, in our society and world, we are not seeing what we think should be upheld by way of the Ten Commandments because we've been raised in them and we know what they are. We wish that our culture could get back to the Ten Commandments. Does that bother you? It doesn't bother me as much as it used to. That might surprise you. Because I understand that unless people are in a covenantal relationship with God, they're going to have a hard time accepting the Ten Commandments. Like, uh, you know, today's the Lord's Day, today is the Sabbath. But in my town, in my county, I pass by a lot on Sunday morning, the place that is the best attended of any place, including every church in town, and it's called 
Bucky's. Yeah, I call it the first church of the Bucky's. Because when I look at it, I know over the period of time churches are meeting, absolutely more people are attending and worshiping there than any church that I know of in our area. Does that bother me a little? Because you notice I mentioned it this morning. But I know the truth that none of the commandments will ultimately be kept unless people are in a right relationship with God. I don't feel that I'm in competition with Bucky's. I'm not in competition with Walmart. I'm not in competition with, with people who show movies on Sundays. I, I wish that all wasn't happening. Have the Ten Commandments changed our world? What do you think? Yes or no? You can say it out loud. Yes? Um, can keeping the Ten Commandments make the world a better place? Yes, right. But can these commandments be kept for very long apart from a covenant with a, li a living God? No, or not for very long. The Ten Commandments, understand, are not a religion within themselves. They were intended for people who are in a covenantal relationship with God, the one true God, and that's where they ultimately work. Now, let's look at the Ten Commandments in content. And what I mean, what are the Ten Commandments? And how can I summarize them in a short period of time? I've done whole series on the Ten Commandments. How can I summarize them in a short time? Well, you may know that neither the addition of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 actually say that these are the, quote, Ten Commandments. But there are three other texts that do. Exodus 34, 28, Deuteronomy 4, 13, and Deuteronomy 10, 4. And in this last one, it says this, The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before, the Ten Commandments he proclaimed to you on the mountain. Ten Commandments are what we read there in that verse, but that's not what it is in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it says ten words. And in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the uh, Old Testament, it says Logos, which means Ten words. And so that gives us a, another name for the Ten Commandments, which is what? Decalogue. Maybe you've heard that. Now, each commandment actually has multiple words. There's not just one word in those commandments that is a reference for the ten words. But if we could choose one word to represent each commandment, what might it be? When I was in seminary, we had a president named Roy Honeycutt, and he wrote a book almost 60 years ago called These Ten Words, where he suggested what word should represent each commandment. And I've chosen those for my quick summary of the Ten Commandments. So here's number one, the commandment of priority, you shall have no other gods before you. Our Judeo-Christian point of view is that there is one true God. In fact, we hold there are no other gods. But when we look at the history of the world, we know that many peoples have believed in multiple gods. We call this polytheism. But, but we are monotheists. We believe in only one God. Now, there are some religions in the world that only believe in that there is one God, but it is the not, not the God of the Bible. And there are also some cultic versions of Christianity that believe that um, God the Father and Jesus are two separate gods and so forth. 
But that's not what we believe. We believe that the foundation of our faith is that there is one true God who has revealed himself to us, and we're to always keep him in front of us. He is to be our priority. We are to follow him. So that's the commandment of priority. Secondly, is the commandment of sovereignty. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Sovereign. What does that mean? It means that the one God over all of us was meant to rule over us. And we're not to worship gods that are made with our hands. We're to worship the God who made our hands and everything else. And strictly speaking, this commandment is against the making of idols, of wood and stone and and precious metals depicting the objects of worship like the sun and the moon and the stars or animal life like a calf or or a cow or even a mythical creature. Idol worship is prolific in the world even still today. But there are forms of Christianity that have their idols. Have you noticed? There are statues, there are icons, and there are relics, and people are really more interested in those, it seems sometimes, than in God himself. And then we must admit that in the modern Christian church, we have our own forms of idols, maybe in buildings or or programs. And then when we put others above God, we're breaking God's commands. When we improperly idolize human beings... We might innocently say, especially if you have grandchildren, which I do, I have four, oh, I just worship the ground they walk on. Have you ever heard that? But sometimes we literally do. There's people in politics and sports and finance and entertainment, and, uh, and we give them, by the attention we give them, we give them power over us greater than God himself but only God is meant to rule over us. He is sovereign. Third, there is the commandment of sincerity. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, or you shall not take his name in vain. Now, this third commandment uh, is usually taken to mean that you shall not use God's name in a frivolous or a profane or a vain way. To misuse means to, or to, Take his name in vain is to means to no good purpose. And so certainly to use God's name as a byword or as part of a vulgarity is, is, is wrong. Which name of God? God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, any of those. Certainly the Hebrew people. Uh, would never say the revealed name of God, Yahweh, like I just said it. But instead, they would substitute what name? Adonai, which is the word for Lord. That's how much they revered the name of God. They would not dare say it. But we don't have that same reverence. And, uh, you know, let me just give you a sort of a strange illustration about how bizarre and how absurd it is for us to Take the name of the Lord our God in vain. How many of you have seen uh, The Mandalorian? Have, how many of you? On, on, lots of you. Let me see your hands. Lots of you. And so you know the, the, the star of the show is Baby Yoda, right? You know, everybody likes Baby Yoda. And Baby Yoda has a real name. What is that? Anybody know? Oh, you know. Look at you. 
Now, would it be weird, would it be bizarre to say as an exclamation, oh, my Yoda? Would it be strange to say, good Grogu? That's weird, isn't it? That's absurd. But that's what we do with the names of our Lord when we take his name in vain. It's absurd. It's also wrong. And we should be careful about that. But you know that in a deeper sense, um, this is not just about language. It's about our living. It's about taking God's name as a believer, but not living sincerely. It's about taking on his name, but never obeying his commands, taking on his name, but never being interested in his great commission. It's about wearing a cross, but never bearing a cross. Misusing the name of God is serious business to our Lord. He wants sincerity in his followers in both our language and our living. And now here's number four. The commandment of sanctity, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And this is perhaps to me the most violated of all the commandments when we look at society as a whole. Even in a once called Christian nation like America, if people have trouble giving themselves one day of rest and giving God one day of reverence. But God commanded both. Now, the Jews equate Sabbath with the seventh day of the week, even though those are two different words in Hebrew. In Israel today, the Sabbath is kept strictly, although it is more legalistic than it is religious. You probably all heard about the Sabbath elevator, the Sabbath elevator on buildings. So if you're in a building that has an elevator, on the Sabbath, it stops at every floor so you won't have to push a button because that's considered to be work. And so that's uh, more of a, a legalistic thing, though, I think, in Israel today than it is religious. But after Christ's resurrection, on the first day of the week, Christianity eventually gravitated to the first day of the week for worship. But we still have a Sabbath command from God that we need to make sense of. We still need a day of rest, and we still need a day to reverence God. Let me ask you a question. Uh, what do you think? Did God really need to rest on the seventh day? I mean, when he got to the fourth day, when he got to hump day, did he start yearning for the weekend? When he got to the sixth day, did he say, thank me, it's Friday? No. God rested as an example so that we would rest. And how often I have invited people to come to church on Sunday, and I've heard this one more than anything else. Well, Sunday is my only day to what? Rest. You know what? I'm glad for that when they say that because they have made half of the argument for me. God created you to rest, and, um, and the rest of the story is found in worshiping God. It was St. Augustine of Hippo who said this, Thou hast made me for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We need a day of rest 
to remind us to rest in the Lord. And God tells us to set apart some time to be holy because he is holy. And that's what sanctity means. Now, the first four commandments are about our relationship with God vertically, if you want to look at it that way. But now we're coming to the second six commandments, and they're about our relationship with other people horizontally, if you like. And so number five is the commandment of unity. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You know, somebody once said, as the family goes, so society goes. As society goes, so the country goes. As the country goes, so what? The world goes. So there's, there's a unity, there's a connection between those things but the unity, it goes back to the family, and it goes back to father, mother, and honoring them. The word honor in Hebrew, the root word, comes from a root word which means to give weight or heaviness. And I might say it is an honor to be with you today. But then with that comes the heaviness of preparing for this message that I might rightly divide the word of God. And the same thing applies to... Um, Honoring our parents. When we are called to honor our parents, it means to recognize the weight and the responsibility of their role and to respect that and along with it to love and appreciate and obey them. Now, if parents want their children to respect them, here's a key, parent. You as a husband and wife need to respect one another. Values are caught as well as taught by parents to children. And one of the reasons that children sometimes do not honor their parents is because they have not seen their parents honoring each other. Parents being disrespectful to each other can result in disrespectful kids. But listen, you know, every parent has a bad day. Shake your head this way if you understand what I mean by that. Every kid has a bad day or more. But overall, when parents teach their children honor and respect, they eventually get it. But remember, kids, whatever the case, this is a commandment from the Lord. And whether you feel like it or not, whether you agree with your mother or dad or not, you are to honor your parents. And please don't miss the last part of this commandment, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Observing and obeying the commands impacts the life of the land in which we are living. It impacts our culture, our country, our world, and it all goes back to unity in the home. Number six, the commandment of responsibility, you shall not murder. I always thought it was interesting that that followed, you shall obey your parents. Have you ever noticed that? Older versions of the Bible say, you shall not kill. But the Hebrew word here and in Deuteronomy 5 is better translated as murder. It can mean a premeditated murder, but also it's used in the Scripture to referring in common law to what is called manslaughter. And there's another word for kill in Hebrew, and it is used for the first time when Cain killed Abel. Now, when you think about the commandment we just looked at, the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, what could possibly have gone so wrong in the household of Adam and Eve that one of their sons, Cain, would kill his brother Abel. And yet it is true that the first family in human history produced 
the very first murder. The old question is, why did Cain kill his brother? And the old answer is, because he was able. That's a joke. But it was apparently because of jealousy, because God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and you must overcome it. But instead, it overcame him, and he killed his brother. And after that happened, God went out looking and asked Cain, where is your brother? And he famously responded, what? Am I my brother's? Yes, he was. He was responsible for his brother. And so we are responsible for the lives of people from the unborn to the elderly and everyone of every age and stage in between. But strangely enough, murder is so prevalent in human history that it has become a frequent subject of books, plays, television, and movies. It has become a macabre form of entertainment. But if you have ever been through the murder of a family member or friend, and I have, it is a nightmare that takes years to awaken from and to learn to live with. Yet for all the murder there is, were this law not in place, it would be even more common that it is. And one of the reasons for murder brings us to the seventh commandment, the commandment of fidelity, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery, what is that? Strictly defined, it is having a consensual affair with someone else's spouse or fiancé in violation of the vow of marriage or betrothal. Fidelity to one's spouse is the bedrock of social order. Monogamy requires sexual purity in the covenant of trust between man and woman. And when this commandment is broken, when there is infidelity, it is likely the result of the breakage of other commandments. It is certainly a result of a covetousness God, I can't even say the word, covetousness of the highest order, and it often leads to murder. It's a home wrecker. In fact, God has often used the term adultery to describe the monumental unfaithfulness of his people toward him and the breakage of covenant between God and Israel. Years ago, as I mentioned, uh, I preached a series. I did it at my former church, but I, I just clarify to say, Brandon Mitchell, this was not at Central. It was at a church I pastored before, the story I'm about to tell. But I was preaching through the, the Ten Commandments, and uh, week by week, and the week before I was set to preach on adultery, a knock came at the door of a cabin where I was at a camp studying for my doctoral work. So I was way 40 miles away from my church, and a knock came at the door. That didn't happen. And when I opened the door, there was a man and a woman standing there. They were married, but not to each other. And they confessed to me that they had been involved in an adulterous affair. And they said, every week, as we sat there in our church, next to our spouses, every week, as we went through the commandments, the pressure began to build. And finally, we said, we have got to go and make that confession. 
I'd like to say that it turned out well for them, but in fact, it cost the man his job because of the circumstances, and it cost the woman her marriage. Can damage like that be overcome? Can the breakage of trust be overcome? It can, but not without a lot of work. And that's why I say this, sometimes the greatest testimony is not the trouble that God gets you out of, but it's the trouble that God keeps you from getting into in the first place when you obey His commands. Fidelity is one of those commands. Number eight, the commandment of honesty, you shall not steal. And this commandment is pretty straightforward and most universally accepted of all the Ten Commandments, I think. You know, stealing is stealing in just about any and every culture. And stealing is taking that which uh, belongs to another without their knowledge or consent. And although it's primarily concerning material things that we might take with our hands, we can also look at uh, the pilfering of uh, intellectual property, and we have something, if you've ever been in school, you know the word plagiarism, and we don't do that, right? To, to stealing persons and enslaving them through human trafficking. But it all harkens back to basic honesty. Not long ago, a, a young preacher wanted me to review a, a sermon that he had written. And, uh, and I decided to review the whole service. And... Um, and I really loved what he did. And then he did this welcome. It was such an amazing welcome. And I commented on how much I liked the welcome. And when he wrote me back, this is what he said. I stole that from Brandon. <laughs> and he had. And, and what I, I love that young man even more for that. And, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, he was unwilling to take credit for something that that he did not create or initiate. And to me, that speaks right back to this commandment that uh, you shall not lie, uh, you shall not bear false witness. And that actually brings us to the ninth commandment, the, con the uh, commandment of integrity. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This commandment is targeted primarily toward perjury, giving false testimony. However, in Leviticus 19... It is shortened to, you shall not lie. It's about truthfulness in every level, from the courtroom to the classroom, from the church house to your house. It's not just about what you say. It's also about what you do in reference to what you say. If you take a job, do it. If you make a commitment, fulfill it. You know, sometimes we do what we call stretching the truth to make ourselves look better or, or someone else look less than they are. But here's something I want to tell you. It's always better to seem less than you appear than to seem more than what you are. Unfortunately, lying is the most common currency exchanged in politics, and that is why this is going to be such a very long year. <laughs> when we stretch the truth... It weakens the integrity of our relationships and in ways that are hard to see at first, but bit by bit, integrity is weakened until it collapses. And to keep that from happening, be part of telling the truth. Last, number 10, the commandment of security. You shall not covet. 
Exodus 20:17. And this commandment is about keeping our desires in check. The word covet, to covet in and of itself is not a sin. It means to desire, to treasure something, to take pleasure in something, and there is nothing wrong with that. But to desire something that actually belongs to someone else with the intent to take it from them, that crosses into sinfulness. And I know we may desire certain things, whether it involves the material or the the personal. You may have seen somebody at church today and innocently said, oh, I've been coveting one of those for a long time. And that's okay. To desire that is okay. But to desire something that actually belongs to someone else is wrong and sinful, whether it's someone's spouse or someone else's employee or somebody else's auto to update the language from Exodus 20. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we covet? It creates insecurity in our own lives and a lack of security in the lives of others. People have the right to security and what they have without others desiring to have it. And that goes from our personal belongings to the borders of other nations. So we've looked at the Ten Commandments in context. Now we've looked at the Ten Commandments in content. But now let's finally look at the Ten Commandments in Christ. Okay? What did Jesus Christ bring to our understanding of the Ten Commandments? Number one, Christ simplified the commandments. Jesus was famously asked what he considered to be the greatest commandment, and he answered by quoting Scripture. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, a lot of people refer to that as the what? The great what? Commandment. But I like to refer to them as the great commandments because there's more than one. And in Matthew's version, we see this. He says in Matthew 22, 40, Jesus says, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And so everything is hanging on these two commandments. So Jesus simplifies the Ten Commandments into two categories, loving God, and that's the first four commandments, that vertical relationship with God, and then loving our neighbor, that's the final six commandments. And, uh, and Jesus says, if you love me, if you love God, obey my commandments. Secondly, Christ personalized the commandments. And what I mean by this is Jesus took us behind the law and showed us the personal problems of the heart that lead to the breaking of the commandments. And in the Sermon on the Mount, which you studied prior to the series that you're in right now, he showed us how anger in our hearts can can lead to things like murder, and he actually equates anger in our hearts unchecked with murder. And he equated unchecked lusting in our hearts with adultery. And so Jesus personalizes that. He brings it back to a matter of the heart. And by personalize, I also mean that, that Jesus was, was very big on not just getting caught up in the mechanics of the law, but he always wanted to keep people in, in, in his point of view. Take, for instance, uh, 
Jesus and his disciples were hungry on the Sabbath and they grabbed some grain out of a field and they were nailed for breaking God's law. And that's when Jesus put the personal over the mechanical and he said famously, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then we find the woman in John 8 caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus to be stoned. And he looked at the men who brought her and he said, let he who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. And when they all refused and when they all dropped their rocks and split, as I like to put it, he turned to her and said what? Go and sin no more. But lest Jesus be accused himself of being a lawbreaker, which he was when he walked upon the earth. Thirdly, let's understand that Christ exemplified the commandments. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus fulfilled the commandments. He exemplified them. No one ever did that but Jesus. Not even Moses. My oldest granddaughter is named Olivia. She just turned 10 years old. But Olivia likes jokes and riddles. Anybody like jokes and riddles? And one day she came to me and she said, Papa, who is the greatest sinner in the Bible? And I began to think about that seriously. I forgot it was a joke. And I I was thinking, uh, well, maybe Jezebel in the Old Testament. I can't stand her. And or Judas in the New Testament. And I suggested those, and she goes, no, Papa, it was Moses. And I asked why, and she said, because Moses broke all the commandments. And that is so true. After Moses received the Ten Commandments for the first time, he came down from Mount Sinai and he found the people partying and worshiping a golden calf. And he took those two stone tablets, which if you read the whole story, you'll find God inscribed those stone tablets with his own finger. And it even says he did it on both sides of the stones, the, the first ever duplex printing in the world. And what happened? Moses was upset, he was angry, and he threw them to the ground and shattered them. He broke all of God's commandments. Now, Libby was right, but so have we. And everyone who's ever lived has done it, everyone except for Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews about him, but we have one, Jesus, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without what? Sin. Jesus was without sin. He fulfilled the law, and because of that, he is our example. And just as the Israelites were given a perfect law to follow, to keep them from sinning on their way out of Egypt, God has given us out of our sin a perfect Savior to follow, to keep us from sinning. But we have sinned, and so that brings me to my last point, and it's this. Christ simplified, Christ personalized, Christ exemplified the Ten Commandments, but finally Christ crucified the commandments. You say, how is that? Well, He was crucified for our sins on the cross, but in dying for us, He crucified the commandments and the ability for them to hold us in bondage over our past sins. And Paul helps us to understand this in Ephesians He says, but now in Christ Jesus, 
You once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances and might reconcile us to God, thereby killing the hostility. It's a wonderful thing Jesus did for us. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God, that vertical relationship. He breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between us and our neighbor. That's the last six commandments, our horizontal obligation to our fellow man. But most of all, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between you and me and God through the sacrifice of his son. For those of us in Christ, the commandments of God no longer hold us in bondage to a past, but release us to live as God intended. You know, many people in the world, have you noticed, are hostile to the Ten Commandments. Have you noticed that? They say, don't tell me how to live my life. You know what my response is? Come to Christ. Come into covenant with God by faith in Christ. And the commandments will no longer feel like a have to. They will feel like a get to. They will not be a burden. They'll be a blessing. They're not here to hinder us. They're here to help us and to keep us from sinning and hurting ourselves and others. They call us to love God and to love our neighbor. And what could possibly be better than that? And the way we come into covenant with God It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And it was prophesied what that Spirit would do. And I close out with this scripture from Ezekiel, where it was prophesied and later fulfilled in the New Testament. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And isn't that a wonderful thing that this exterior, these laws that were written in stone now are written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. And no longer are we having to be corralled like animals by laws that are around us. Instead, we're led from within by God's laws in God's ordinances. And in Hebrews, we are called living stones, living examples of these commandments in human flesh by the grace of God and the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.